Hello, and thank you for listening to Forgotten Cello Music. Today's episode, 38, is all about Johann Schutke, a German cellist who immigrated to England and then to Scotland in Edinburgh. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I've gotten a couple of emails from people who have said that they were interested in what I was doing. So thank you for that, and thank you for sending your messages to me. It really helps spur on the work, gives me a little bit more spring in my step, as it were. If you don't already know, I also have a YouTube channel. I put together short videos in general, occasionally longer videos, and some live streams. You can find me at Traveling Cello. That's my channel name. I'd be really delighted to see you over there and to press the subscribe button and to also leave a comment and press the like. I have a little goal of upping my subscription to 200. Yes, I know it's quite low, and I didn't expect it to take quite so long as it has to even get to 100. But right now I'm at 111, so I'm counting my blessings. My little bit longer goal is 500 subscribers, and I'll tell you why. I would like to be able to post some things in the community tab. As of yet, I cannot do that. In fact, I have no community tab because I have not reached the threshold of 500 subscribers. So if you don't already subscribe to Traveling Cello on YouTube, please head on over there. I'd love to see you there. Press like, interact, say hi. Now, on to the episode. Johann Schettke. duets for two violoncellos, with some observations on and rules for violoncello playing, dedicated to all gentlemen lovers of the violoncello, by Johann Schettke, Opus 7. This was printed in London in the 1700s. That was the title page that I just read. Yes, he does actually write a preface himself. It's about three pages long, where he does give some observations on cello playing and specifically these duets. It's interesting though, you can decide for yourselves, but it seems to me that he spends an awful lot of time about the bass part and accompanying. Now, it does make some good sense to me, but I'll address some of that later. I have a couple of readings today. One is the preface, and then the complete bio sketch from the violoncello and its history by Joseph Vasilevsky. And finally, a little bit of a gem that I discovered in digging around. Johann Schetke was closely associated with Edinburgh for the last half of his life, where he settled permanently. He was playing quite frequently in a hall there that was quite well known to people 
at that time that was St. Cecilia's Hall. It was written about by one David Harris in 1899, and I'll be taking some excerpts from there. Now, as you listen to the readings and a little bit of uh, some of my own observations later on, you will be hearing some duets. I recorded about five of these duets, and they were great fun. Please enjoy some of the background music, and if you'd like to hear a little bit more of the music uh, played a little more prominently, please write that in a message. Maybe I would arrange where I might even play some of the duets alone. to the preface of these 12 duets, where Johann Schetzky writes, Some observations on and rules for violoncello playing. Now Schetzky writes, Although the violoncello has of late been brought to a degree of perfection unknown before, and is now the object of many rising geniuses, yet I think there is a want of instructive music for that instrument. It may be asserted that every bass part of a well-composed piece of music is a proper lesson for the violoncello. And this is true when the performer is enabled to play a part along with others. But if he is not capable of doing this, I really think that a plain bass is too tedious and insipid for a beginner and rather tends to discourage than entice him to proceed. Since particular pieces of music, the airs of which are easily caught by the ear, are given to every beginner on other instruments, the violoncello may surely claim the same privilege and advantage, for pieces of this kind will not only induce him to practice, but will quicken and improve his ear by making him sensible whether he stops in tune or not. I am at the same time, however, of opinion that very few bass players will make good accompanists if they have not a tolerable notion of singing or playing a first part accompaniment should be the first object of a violoncellist the instrument being principally invented and intended for that purpose and as such it cannot properly be wanted for which reason i would advise every lover of it to play the gamut from and he notates here low c to high D, and this is the fourth finger on the A string in first position. Play the gamut from the C to the D in long and slow notes, taking care to draw the bow in an equal line across the string, so the sound may be equally strong from the beginning to the end. By this method he will not only learn to draw the full tone from the instrument, but he will likewise be able to increase or diminish it according to the nature of the composition. I really believe that the visible want of good accompaniers is to be attributed to the neglect of this method, for every violoncellist ought to be thoroughly acquainted with the part of the instrument necessary for accompaniment before he begins to play in the tenor cliff, that is, clef. 
whereas every young beginner generally aims at playing in altissimo before he can play with propriety the lower notes of the instrument. A well-played solo on the violoncello is doubtless agreeable and delightful. But let the solo player be ever so eminent, as such he will fall considerably in the estimation of all real connoisseurs when they find that he is not a good accompanier. And indeed the audience would soon be fatigued if the performance consisted only in solos or concertos. A violoncellist should be very attentive in all full pieces, keeping his eyes on his own part and giving his ears to that of his leader. The first violin generally leads the whole band and ought to be followed by everyone, but particularly by the first violoncello. For if the two keep close together, the other parts, in case of error, will soon find their place again. As the second violin often comes in with the first, and the tenor with the bass in the same passage, except in intricate pieces purposely composed for four parts, and then everyone ought to attend particularly to his own part. The following rules will, I hope, be found useful in playing the violoncello. First, make yourself master of the lower notes of the instrument as being principally necessary. For when you begin to play higher, you will find that when the position of the thumb comes in, it usually keeps on for a whole passage, and a sensible, judicious composer who is acquainted with the instrument will take care to give the performer an opportunity of shifting from one place to another. Second, keep the longer notes to their full extent without dragging, and play the shorter notes with a precise distinctness without accelerating the time. Third, be attentive to your leader or first part and mark the different degrees of expression, namely pianissimo, piano, forte, fortissimo, etc., etc. Now, if these rules are practiced and attended to, you will soon become an able accompanier, and certainly an able accompanier is and ought to be as esteemed as a good solo player, for to become the first, it requires equal if not superior judgment to the latter. I think it proper to mention that I have often observed a first violin performer, though a very able master, would never follow the other parts when they had a solo in their turn in trio, quartettos, or quintettos, but under the pretense of maintaining the privilege of a leader often play too loud, and either accelerated or retarded the time, by which means he not only prevented the then first part from giving the proper expression, but also spoiled the production of good and able composers. A first violin ought to be equally accurate both in leading and following the other parts. His privilege as a leader ceases as soon as the other parts come in with a solo, during which he ought to consider himself as the chief follower and keep up the rest of the band so as to support the solo player. For accompaniment in general is supporting the first part and helping to make his performance easy 
and at the same time producing conjunctively an effect, which otherwise could not be accomplished. I shall now beg leave to lay before the public the following duets, which I have composed for the use and improvement of all lovers of the violoncello, and it will afford me no small satisfaction to hear that they have been of service to any performer that instrument. This was my view in composing them, and I do not pretend to recommend them any further than the answering that purpose. And I shall think myself extremely happy that if from this publication a hint may be furnished to some more able master to enrich the musical world with a complete treatise on violoncello playing. Duets for two violoncellos ought to be played with greater attention and judgment than duets for higher-tuned instruments, because when both play passages in lower compass of the violoncello, if they are not played with a particular accuracy and distinctness, nothing can be heard but an unintelligible jargon. He who plays the accompanying part, whether in the first or second part, should be careful to avoid playing too loud, because he will not only drown the melody, but prevent the other performer from doing justice to the expression. Whoever practices the gamut in long and flow notes, as I have before observed, will be able with great facility to play distinctly the piano, for it is a mistaken notion to suppose that a quick passage cannot be played distinctly or with proper expression, unless it be played loud. I advise the learners who may have occasion to practice these duets to play the first part according to the rules already laid down twice or thrice with their master, and then take the second part which they should adhere to until they can do it properly, and afterwards they will be enabled to play the first part almost to perfection. In the three last duets there are some positions with the thumb which after the learner can play well, the preceding nine duets will be found not very difficult, as I have taken care to make the shift, in general, easy and convenient to the hand and instrument. If I should be so happy as to find this attempt favorably received by the public, and that no other master shall undertake a treatise on the same subject, I shall in the course of time endeavor to the utmost of my abilities to point out to the curious how they may proceed to accomplish themselves as performers on the violoncello. complete preface from Schottky's 12 duets. It is quite an intriguing thing. There's there's a good amount of information there and you know it's it's quite um how can I say you know a lot of it is is simply common sense. You need to play in tune, you need to be sure and play distinctly especially in the lower 
tones and when two instruments are are playing particularly close together in intervals play extremely clearly and distinctly so as not to make some sort of uh, jumbled jargon. Some of the point about a deeper dive into these duets is not only the playing of the duets, which is extremely interesting and the main point, obviously, for this channel, but also it is so intriguing that he wrote 12 duets, not three, not six, but 12 duets that are more or less progressive. I wouldn't say that they're easy. No, not easy by any stretch of the imagination. They're not exactly difficult, although if you are not practiced and uh, you're not up to the intermediate level, I would say, then they can be a bit challenging. And then, as I was playing these duets, it struck me that the Boeings seemed almost to be well thought out as if he wanted you to follow the bowings exactly. Now there are no down bows and up bows marked in the score that I have. Um, but if you start them as you are generally taught to do as a string player, up bow for an upbeat, down bow for a downbeat, which is a stronger beat, especially beat one, in general, it works out quite well for the phrase. There are times, however, where you have to think, now did he really mean to do that? Is it a mistake? Or was it a typo, an oversight? Maybe the publishers didn't get it right? Who knows? And so, when it comes to actually playing them as a performance, in a recording as I have done, one must make decisions, and it just intrigued me that, um, Maybe it's possible to leave the Boeings as they are, and at other times, yeah, maybe I should change the Boeing slightly. At any rate, the main point about a recording is that it sounds pleasant. It sounds like something you want to listen to. So, keeping that in mind, sometimes I did change the Boeing just slightly so as to create the most pleasant sound I possibly could given the um, current ability that I have that is approximately four years of really not being involved in music too much recording here for the last two years um, and then you know a couple of hours of practice every day or so and then lastly what what I am really interested about in these podcast episodes is historical information that I could dig up. So, obviously, the book, uh, The Violin Cello and Its History by Vasilevsky, was the starting point that got me to know about Johann Schetke. And then, later on, I decided, hey, I should look him up in Baker's Musician uh, Dictionary from the uh, early 1900s, public domain, and then the, I don't know, one of the first publications of the Gros Dictionary's late 1800s public domain. Upon 
reading those, I discovered that there was a book written about this St. Cecilia Hall, which I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode. And there, I want to read some excerpts. So let's get on with doing a little bit of um, exploration in more specific things about the man, Shetke himself. All right, for starters, let's begin where I began with knowing about Shetke, and that is the violoncello and its history. Johann Georg Shetke, born 1740 at Darmstadt, Germany, deserves special mention as a pupil of Flitz, whose instruction he enjoyed for one month after his father, who was secretary to the Grand Duke of Darmstadt and tenor singer to the cathedral, had given him his first musical education. He seems to have taken up cello playing by himself at first, but his theoretical education was carried on by the concertmaster Enderle. In the year 1761, Schetke went for six months with his father and his two sisters to Hamburg. There he had the opportunity of hearing great artists, which incited him to zealously study on his instrument. On his return to Darmstadt, he found a post in the orchestra there. Now and then, he performed at concerts in the neighboring towns. After the death of his parents, he finally quitted Darmstadt in 1768. He visited Hamburg and then went to London, where the patronage of Johann Christoph Bach was of service to him. Schetke did not, however, remain long in the English capital, as he received a proposal to go to Edinburgh, Scotland, which he accepted. He very soon, in consequence of his marriage with a rich widow, retired into private life, being known to fame only through his compositions, these taking no account of an important collection of various orchestral and chamber music works, consist of numberless violin concertos, duets for violin and violoncello, sonatas for violoncello and bass, and the twelve duets for two violoncellos, with some observations and rules for playing the instrument, Opus 7. In these duets, a title says Shetke had a scholastic aim in view, yet they can scarcely be called a violoncello school. One of the last of Shetke's published works is his Opus 13, which contains six sonatas for violoncello with unfigured bass, basically duets. The compositions therein contained give a distinct idea of his fluent, though superficially mechanical, manner of writing. It can readily be discerned that Chetki had, for the time in which he lived, a remarkable technique in playing. He must have been able to, with ease, play at sight the first violin part in quartets, a talent which proves at once his skill and readiness. His power and agility in bowing, as well as his staccato playing in up and down strokes, were famous. According to Gerber's account, Shetke died in Edinburgh in 1773. In Forster's History of the Violin, it is said, on the contrary, that his death took place only in 1824. Now, the Bakers and Groves, I will uh, refrain from reading anything from there because it's basically just repeating what Vasilevsky said. So I'm going to go straight into the account of the St. Cecilia's Hall in Edinburgh, uh, written by David Harris in 1899. This comes from a chapter in the history of the music of the past in Edinburgh. 
Now, as I looked into the life of Shetke and discovered this book about the history of music in Edinburgh, which is obviously connected to St. Cecilia's Hall, I was quite happy to see that there was a little bit more written about this this uh, cellist composer, and so I've learned a little bit more about him. Here are just a few excerpts, some anecdotes from the book St. Cecilia's Hall by David Harris, 1899. The first account. Shetke is such a prominent figure in Edinburgh that he is given an illustration on page 71 where we can view his grinning likeness. He is not featured in the table of contents, nor is any other single person, since this book is about the music hall itself. Shetke arrived in Edinburgh for the first time in February 1772. Johann Schettke was intended to study law in Jena, Germany, but it has not infrequently happened that many who have been sent to the study of law have had very little taste for it, and in a few cases they have providentially managed to break away from its dry-as-dust thraldom and indulge their natural aptitude for something else. Page 65. He soon became celebrated as a composer and celloist and traveled for two years. He was often in company of royalty, and as one of his daughters recalled, he was flattered and admired at foreign courts and meeting with so much prosperity elsewhere. The same daughter continues on about the scene her father was privileged to play in. Those splendid St. Cecilia concerts, the audience composed exclusively of the aristocracy, combining so much talent, add to this easy access a well-educated and accomplished foreigner found to the best society. These things must, I think, have combined to make him like the place. Page 67. He was acquainted with the poet Robert Burns and even composed a tune for the song Clarinda, Mistress of My Soul. Page 69. The sad lament can be summed up in the stanza, this is stanza two, we part, but by those precious drops that fill thy lovely eyes, no other light shall guide my steps till thy bright beams arise. Page 70. Shetke also uh, wrote another Scottish tune called Mary's Dream. And by all accounts given in this book, Johann Shetke was a distinguished musician with an excellent reputation. The Old Dictionary of Musicians, that is Sainsbury and Company 1824, which is the year of Shetke's death, also points out that he composed five operas of instrumental music. He also left many manuscript compositions for his instrument, page 68. Now, to my mind, the amount of time that Shetke spent on specific technique is surprisingly short uh, when it comes to the fact that he actually mentioned that this would be some observations about playing the cello. Um, you know, you can glean from it and, I suppose, uh, infer from it what, what he wants, but as a beginner, you certainly are not going to do that, and probably not as an intermediate player, and certainly not as a young learner. 
wouldn't even read the preface. Uh, as you heard, he spends most of the three pages talking about how to be a good bass player and accompanist, um, how to, uh, let's see, making sure that you really understand that you need to play in tune and you have, need to have good tone control and all of that uh, stuff that is certainly good. I mean, you have to be able to do that uh, anyway. Have control over the instrument, basically. There are not that many books written about these neglected musicians. Most of the time you find anecdotes in other biographies about other musicians. And this is the case of Shetke. You find a little bit written about him in this book about St. Cecilia's Music Hall. Um, but there is indeed more information out there than we previously thought I would ascertain. So I I do think that it is evident that these people like Chetki did contribute much to music, even though we've forgotten about them. At the time that they were involved and active, uh, it was obvious that he was well known. People all over uh, wanted to hear him. He played for kings and queens. Uh, he was associated with the famous poet Robert Burns. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you can be so famous at the time of your life, and then when you die, you become unknown. <laughs> but, you know, life moves on, of course, and more different composers come on, and, and others are long-lasting, and yada, 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 right? That, that happens. Now, as I mentioned, I have a YouTube channel. I would like to eventually do all 12 duets, uh, but for now, I have uh, three duets that I've videoed, and uh, I've recorded five. You'll hear bits and pieces, poss possibly all, all uh, the length of each movement, which is a total of ten movements throughout this podcast episode. I'd like to point out, and please listen for it, there's a duet that has something that sounds like a, a traditional tune, and in particular, possibly a Scottish-like tune. This is in duet number three. And although I'm not a, a real experienced player, I have dabbled in playing traditional tunes, and I even took some lessons to learn more about it. And it was great fun. <laughs> Scottish tune for Robert Burns' poem, Clarinda, so it seems like this is fairly good evidence that he probably included Scottish elements, if not Scottish-like tunes, in his own compositions. Well, whatever it may be, I sure am happy to have found these 12 duets, and I'm very pleased with what they sound like. Please, send me a message, tell me what you think. Are these 12 duets, at least in part, worth studying? Would you give them to your students? Maybe you would even transpose them if you're not a cellist and you're some other instrument player. That's it for now, and if you want to hear 
more and see me perform them, please go to my YouTube channel. You can search Traveling Cello. And if you have the desire to, to support this channel, you can click on the link for my paypal.me forward slash traveling cello, send a dona donation, or go to my Patreon. When you do sign up, I'm notified so I can see right away that you've signed up. And if you are interested, if you sign up for, let's say, $5 or more, I am uh, offering a free PDF of an arrangement of the swan or the carol of the bells. At the $10 level, it would be for the complete treaties of the violoncello by Broderip and Wilkinson. With that, I hope you enjoyed and remember to play more forgotten cello music.